0: I'm Nick, and this is the Niche Aviation Podcast. Every week, I speak to founders and key employees of interesting and unique aviation businesses. This week's episode is with Kirsty Murphy, who is a pilot for The Blades. The Blades is a British aerobatics team, and their unique selling point is that all of their pilots are ex-Red Arrows pilots. In this episode, we talk about Kirsty's career in the RAF and the Red Arrows. We also talk about how the Blades was founded. And finally, we talk about how you can fly with the Blades. I hope you enjoy the episode, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for joining me. It's really Great to have you on and I really enjoyed all the other stuff you've done. So maybe just to start, it'd be really interesting to understand just how you got into flying.
1: So um, my dad was in the Air Force. So I grew up around it very much. I probably got to about the age of 11, I think. Um, and that was when I started spending my summer holidays when my parents were still working and I was on holiday. I'd go and spend time with my dad uh, at his work. My mum was a teacher, so I couldn't go into school with her, but I could go to to work with dad. Um, and I he was a navigator on the Tornado GR1 at the time. And I used to go along with him and then help him plan his missions. Um, he used to then go flying and, and I'd go to the air traffic control tower and watch him fly, watch them come back and sit in their debrief. And I really loved the atmosphere that was on the squadron. It was They said a sense of being part of the family and the guys really, I mean, they were great to be honest. It must've been a nightmare having an 11 year old, 12 year old girl hanging around every day, but um, they really sort of made me feel part of that family. Um, There was lots of little jokes about I was the newest squadron's navigator and all this kind of stuff. Um, And I loved it. And I thought, well, I want to be part of that somehow. So that's what I want to do when I'm older. Um, At the time, interestingly, they didn't have fast jet female pilots at the time. So, I thought, well, I, I want to join the Air Force because I think it's the Air Force that gives me that sense of family or, or that camaraderie. Um, and then I, as I go down the line, I'll try and pick out what job I actually want to do. And then about a year later, they actually started letting girls be pilot, fast jet pilots. So I literally as a 13 year old, or whatever it was, sort of said, well, OK, that's what I'm going to aim to do then. Um, and that was it. So I was super lucky in that I was exposed to it at a younger age. Um, so it seemed achievable and doable. Um, and I've got a real big thing about this now is that, you know, actually looking back, I, I never chose to be a lawyer or go into finance or um, anything else because I, I didn't know enough about it. And it seemed unachievable. Whereas for me, weirdly, being a fast jet pilot in the Air Force was completely doable there was no reason why i wouldn't do that so um i try and take that lesson forward now when i speak to younger people about um their aspirations and try and show them that they just need to touch different areas and different career areas to to you know get that inspiration to maybe think well i could probably do that as well and um and, and be brave enough to go for it i guess
0: what did the um other girls think
1: well, I went to an all girls boarding school because obviously with dad being in the Air Force, he, he was likely to move to Germany halfway through my secondary school um, time. So I was put in a boarding school. So it was um, all girls. And I mean, they literally said to me, oh, never thought of doing that. Um, and that really strikes a chord with me now is it, they just didn't think about it. It wasn't that they didn't want to do it themselves. They actively chose not to do it. They just never crossed their mind to do it. Um so they thought I was a bit of an anomaly, I think, um, but they were pretty, you know, everyone was like, oh, that's just Kirsty. She wants to do that. That's fine. Um, interestingly, my school, though, um, <clears throat> were not quite so keen. Um, so they had me down to go to Oxbridge. Um, they were keen for me to um, go into maybe medicine or something like that. I was quite sciencey at school and uh, I used to have to go and see the Air Force recruiting guy who I was sort of trying to maintain a sort of contact with because obviously I couldn't get to normal careers offices very easily because I was at boarding school. Um, And I used to have to trek across town to see him at another school because my school apparently wouldn't let him visit my school for me to visit to for me to yeah i know amazing although having said that now i've I've been back to my school obviously and um i do some of their speech days and they now have a ccf and lots of the girls are really you know keen on getting into the military whether it's the air force or the army or the navy um and and there's a real push behind it so it's great so you know maybe i showed the school that actually you can do and have successful careers in in the military although it didn't seem like it at the time
0: (laughs) so then what was the steps then from teenage in a, in order to get into the Air Force then?
1: Um, so I've wanted to sort of kind of check that I would be able to fly because I suppose it's one of those jobs where you could want to be a pilot but not everybody has the skills to do it Um. and you need quite a good spatial awareness that kind of stuff so I applied for a couple of flying scholarships um, and that for me was the real sort of sealing the aspiration I guess or the ambition that um, actually I think I can do this I didn't know whether I'd get all the way, but I knew I could certainly start that journey um, because I I went solo on my flying scholarship. So I did that. I did my A-levels. And then I actually applied to join the Air Force after my A-levels. And they they told me I wasn't um, uh, suitable. uh, And they turned me down. And the reason being, they said that they didn't think I'd cope in a male-dominated world. Because obviously, on paper, I'd been to a very small village primary school with just two classes. Um, I'd then gone to an all-girls, private boarding school you know so I could I can understand that on paper there's no way I would cope but I knew who I was I'd grown up obviously around a dad in the military I've got an older brother I actually was slightly out of my comfort zone in an all-girls <laughs> boarding school um so I felt like I had to go off and prove to them that no I really could cope so I went to university literally with that was my sole aim to prove to the air force that I would be able to cope so I picked the hardest degree I could which was aeronautical engineering at Imperial College in London. Um, and I went to London because I thought it shows I can you know if I can live in London then I can cope in the Air Force surely and obviously on my course at university there were 50 in my year of which four were girls so I thought well great because that'll again that I can cope in a male dominated world so um, yeah did all that to um, just to show to them that I was serious about wanting to join.
0: So you were able to get in post-university and so the Air Force
1: yeah, so I applied then in my um third year to have sponsorship for my fourth year. I just did a masters. Um, and, and interestingly, again, it's one of those um, you know, you make decisions when you're younger and you don't realise what an impact they might have a bit later on. So when I applied and I was successful for getting sponsorship, they didn't have any of the what was called a bursary at the time, which was um, I think you got sort of twelve hundred pounds towards your um as a grant. Um, but it had no um what's the word you I didn't have to join afterwards I could pay the money back there was no commitment um but they didn't have any of those left so they contacted me and said we can't give you a bursary but we could give you a cadetship which is basically you sign on the dotted line at that point for um a 16 year career at the age of 18 oh oh, sorry I was 21 by then but you get a wage so I was you know I was then paid eight thousand pounds a year which as a student was, you know, incredible. I bought a car and everything was amazing. Um, But then when I came to actually finish university and start the officer training course, they give you a quick pre-medical and they said my eyesight had deteriorated and they only accept pilots in at the beginning if you've got perfect eyesight, you don't have to have corrected vision. Um, But because I'd had this cadetship, I was actually already in the door, foot in the door. So they allowed me to start. If I'd had a bursary, which is what I'd applied for in the first place, that would have been the end of the story there and then so you know it's funny how life turns out isn't it
0: yeah that's super lucky I, I've had friends who have been in the same situation of applying for the RAF and something within them wasn't quite right and yeah it's just um, yeah it's
1: a shame they have so many people apply in that they have to almost have a few things which knock the numbers down a bit And yeah. they, and they will lose some great people unfortunately in that but they get so many people applying anyway they've got a great pool of people to select from anyway
0: so what was your first couple of years like in in the RAF then?
1: So um unlike all my friends from university who went on to jobs and were quite quickly being what I'd call productive um in the air force I was in training for you know years so um I joined I finished my degree in 1999 um <clears throat> and then did officer training so that was at the time 6 months of Nothing to do with flying. Just purely, um, the first little bit is, is like breaking you down to everybody's on the same level. It's all about marching, ironing your clothes, pulling your boots and shoes. You know, doing leaderships out, exercises outside, doing lots of running and press ups and sit ups, and then you sort of move on and you start doing more um, educational stuff. So learning about the air force, the history of the air force, learning about leadership, um, and a bit more sort of formal training. Um, and then it culminates in a couple of really big exercises where you're essentially assessed for um, your officer skills and your leading skills. Um, and then after that, everyone splits off into their various directions for their training, for their branch. So as a pilot, um, I then went off and started flying at Linton on the Tucano, which is a turboprop. Um, so that was great fun. You're now on a course with about nine of us on that course. And you're pretty much with that group of people all the way through flying training. So you've been with them at, initial officer training and you're now with them and you become really close it's a it's a you know a good way to get through quite a tough couple of years because um although it's true of many jobs and courses is you know every day you go flying and if you don't do well on that trip you've probably got one more chance at the same trip and then you're out on your ear kind of thing so it's quite a quite a stressful life actually looking back at the time you just work hard play hard kind of mentality um but yeah looking back you realize you're living you know week in week out just on that sort of oh please just let me do well enough on the next trip (laughs) to get through um and yeah so then training and then all the way through so I I popped out of um training essentially in about 2002 2003 and I started um being an instructor um, on the Hawk T1 at Valley. So I literally instructed the course i just um, learned myself. And they just pick out a few people every now and again to do that. It's a very clever system, actually, because most of the instructors have been to the front line um, and then they come back and they're instructors. So they've got um, lots of frontline experience. They know what their training, what the end product needs to be to be successful on the front line. But equally, um, they've moved away from that uh, you know like the real you know like when you do your driving test there's
0: the beginner mindset
1: yeah, exactly yeah so when you do your driving test there's a whole load of things which you do which you never do again or you learn you stop doing as you become a more experienced driver so it's a bit similar to that so the the instructors we were called creamies because the um, slang are basically for you know we've been creamed off the top of the course Um the idea is is you have only ever known the very sort of academic learning atmosphere and how to do all these exercises and how to fly this aircraft from a very sort of inexperienced but academic point of view so that balanced with the guys coming back from the front line creates quite a good combination in the learning environment for people um, which i think is actually very clever and they stopped doing it for a while and they've interestingly just just restarted it again
0: and then so after a few years you moved across the front line
1: that's right. So I then completed the final bit of the what we call the tactical um, training. And then I was posted onto the Tornado GR4. Um, so I learned how to fly that aircraft or was converted onto it in Scotland. And then I moved down to Norfolk to join my squadron, which is 13 squadron. Um, and then you sort of you're trained to fly the aircraft and you can do the basics, the basic weaponering on it at that point. But then it's the squadrons that actually get you what's called combat ready. And they train you on all the the more the latest techniques and the latest tactics for um, any any kind of missions you might be likely to do and close air support and all the various different tasks that you'll be asked to do as a GR4 crew.
0: How long was it before you <clears throat> joined the Red Arrow?
1: The Red Arrows was my third job in the Air Force, so after the tornado. So I did about three years on the tornado. Um, and then, yeah, I, I literally I walked out of the office one day and saw the advert for the um, for the Red Arrows applications on the wall opposite. And I just sort of, I was obviously a bit bored or something. I wandered over and had a little look. And it had a list of um, what you had to have achieved to be able to apply. And it's things like you have to be above average, which I'd just passed my fours lead check, which meant that when I was in the above average category, um, you had to have a certain number of hours, which I now had. And I looked through this and literally mentally ticked them all off. And I thought, oh, my God, I you know, I'm now in a position where I can apply the Red Arrows. How funny. And wandered off down the corridor. And it was just that little seed of an idea. I'd never wanted to join the Red Arrows prior to that, um, not because I didn't think I was good enough. It just was not on my radar at all. I was way more focused on um, the tactical stuff and being on the front lines. And and I just thought, yeah, I could do this. I really could. And that little seed just grew and grew and grew, and I could not ignore it. Yeah, so I decided to put my own application in <laughs>
0: That's amazing. So what is the process of joining the Red Arrows?
1: Um, so you literally, it's, it's the only job in the Air Force that I know of where you have to ask to do it. Every other posting you get in the Air Force is a, is a, I'd like to call it a negotiation, but sometimes you're just told flat out. But there's, a, there's an organisation that control all of the manning positions and where everybody's going to be posted. Um, and it's, a like I say, a bit of a discussion point, put it that way. The Red Arrows, manning have nothing to do with it. You just say to your squadron boss, I want to apply to be a Red Arrows pilot um, when the call goes out, essentially, and your training folder is sent up to the Red Arrows, Um, they normally get about 30 applicants a year. And they're normally looking to recruit two to three pilots a year because every year they essentially lose three pilots and gain another three. But if you imagine, obviously, the boss job is slightly different. He will be one of the three because obviously there's nine aircraft in the formation. So the one year where there's a new boss as well, you're only recruiting two other normal pilots if that makes sense um so the parent well having now been on the reds um the uh, the the process is really interesting so the squadron will be given all of these training records which we all then sit in a big room and the boss sits at the front and he has the records but he's got tapes over all the names so you can't see any of the names and then he reads out the flying training records for each person and He doesn't just go back, you know, like a year or two. He goes all the way back to the Linton course I talked about when I was flying the Turbo Prop, Because what you're looking at is someone who learns quickly. Um, You don't want someone who has got to be above average because they've been doing the job for so long that they were only ever going to end up being above average because they've got so good at doing the same thing over and over and over. So they go all the way back through your flying training records, read them all out, and then read out the bits from the frontline squadron, but obviously admitting the name an agenda in my case, (laughs) the year I joined. Um, And then they're graded. So the team as a whole agree together to each person, they get graded A, B, C. And then we look at how many A's there are. And there's normally out of the A's, there's probably a couple, two or three of just uh, outstanding individuals, you know, who are just these super talented pilots um, and people. uh, And they just get immediately put into the into the mix um, and then the remaining you basically end up needing nine people so depending on how many you've got spaces you've got left you now go through the a's b's and c's um, and get the best ones out of each out of that pile so you end up basically with the nine best people without knowing who they are from their reports um and then those nine people have basically been shortlisted And then the shortlist um, selection is sort of a week. Um, In my day, we went out to Cyprus and spent a week in March uh, with the team when they were doing their training out there and you get, I mean, it's everything, because obviously in an hour's interview, you can really pretend to be somebody that you aren't. In a week, you just cannot keep that up for that long, so you fly with the team as much as they're flying, you fly in the back seat, so loads of G, lots of stuff you've not seen before. Um, it can be a bit hair-raising at times when you're not used to flying at 100 feet over the sea. It's like, oh my god, what are we doing? And also that sense of oh my god I'm never going to be able to do this if I get in (laughs) what have I done (laughs) why did I apply um and then you do a formal interview you do media training you do a media interview um and then you get sent home and the team sit down and discuss who they think um stood out and they're basically looking for two or three out of those people
0: what was your first flight like your first or your first ever performance what was Um, that like
1: Quite nerve-wracking actually. So my first one was a family's day at RF bryson Norton, which is quite a nice one to do because it's um friendly forces, if you like. Um uh and it's sort of limited, it's a huge air it was a huge air show, but it's um not, you know, hundreds of thousands of people from the public. Um, but I do remember because we always run in crowd rear, obviously the red eyes always fly over your head at the beginning of the show. And as you're running in for that bit, obviously you're in position and and you can sense the tension building and you know, you're descending over the crowd so you can sense the speed increasing. And then um, my heart was just pounding, pounding, pounding more and more and more. And then as we went over the crowd and then you pull up into the first maneuver. And from that moment onwards, it's it's like anything that you've done really good training for, everything else goes out the window. You just focus on what you're doing and you just do it. And then at the very end of it, you kind of go, oh my God, I just did my first display. That was amazing. Um, but yeah, it was a great feeling. And I've got this picture um, from it, actually, which I show in some of the presentations I do. Afterwards, we went into the crowd and we were handing out little freebies and stickers for the kids and that kind of stuff and doing signatures and signing bits and pieces. Um, and I got mobbed by this family of some four or five young girls ranging from about four through to about 11. Um, and they just wouldn't let go of me. I mean, they literally were just hugging me, and jumping on me and um that was the moment i think i realized that actually this whole being the first female in the red arrows it, um was not something that was just going to go away um and also a really good feeling of actually this is something really positive and i need to make sure i do something positive out of this because i hadn't really i'd only thought about the impact on me and all the media coming to the squadron and me being asked lots of questions i hadn't thought about the impact on on other people and younger children in particular so that was a point i thought ah this is this is going to be bigger than I probably thought it was going to be.
0: <laughs> How long did you fly with the Red Arrow? I did
1: two and a half years with them, basically, so two seasons in 2010 and 2011.
0: This is where it's actually quite interesting because this is the re- one of the re- one of the main reasons that I wanted this interview, right? Because it's the blades. The blades to me is really exciting um and so maybe it'd be interesting to see or just to if you could explain what the blades is and why you joined the yeah blades.
1: so the blades is an aerobatics team Um we have four extras four extra 300s which are propeller driven aircraft so that's the big difference between us and the red arrows um and i can talk about that in a minute but um we do air shows and we also do corporate flying and by corporate flying i mean um, companies coming and spending a whole day with us, or um, private flyers, as we call them, coming and spending the day with us, but for maybe a special birthday or something like that. Um, and the idea was born out of um, an ex leader of the Red Arrows and another Harrier pilot who was a squadron commander leaving the Air Force and thinking that this was going to be a good business idea. So everybody wants to fly with the Red Arrows. You know, they, we get requests constantly. To fly with the red arrows. And of course, it's a it's a publicly funded organization. Um, you absolutely can't just you know fly people for free or anything like that unless there's some genuinely um good cause behind it, i.e., normally publicity in some way. Um <clears throat> so they decided that it would be a really good business model to pull out as much as they can from the red arrows and try and give people that same experience. Um, so they recruited only Red Arrows pilots, ex-Red Arrows pilots, um, to fly in this team, the Blades, and set it up to fly private flyers, but also to do these big corporate events. Um, that was back in 2006, I think the company was started, um, and we've been going ever since, which is pretty amazing considering what's happened in the business world since then you know the big financial crash at the end of that decade that they started um and obviously the coronavirus more recently Um, and the company itself has actually expanded hugely so um they diversified really so that that the blade is it's still the kind of core of the company if you like that's where we started but we now got involved in trials with other defense companies um we've got a coast guard contract with the maritime coast guard agency providing 24 hours of cover um we've got um, 737 vip um uh airliners we've got a couple of those and we've got a seven two two seven two sevens that are fitted with this spray equipment and basically they fly over any oil spills and spray this detergent over the oil spills to help break it up so the company now is quite a big and very diverse um aviation company and for me when i left the air force i would come to the end of my commission i could have stayed in the air force but i felt that i'd done a lot of different things in the air force it had been brilliant but the time was coming where i didn't want to start going back and repeating jobs I still felt like I had a lot left in my career and I didn't feel like the Air Force was going to provide that for me. And I also had a small family, a young family, and I didn't want to put my child through me being away as well as my my, my husband. So um, for me, it was the right decision to leave. So I started looking at other jobs and I ended up with a little short list of business development stuff. Obviously, defense companies are generally quite interested in people leaving the Air Force. I'd worked in the training world quite a bit, so I got quite a few contacts uh, through that. Um, and then there's, you know, the blades is this slightly more random job. And I went up and visited and it was that same thing that made me join the Air Force, made me want to join the Red Arrows is, is that teamwork um, the challenge of the job on a day to day level personally, you know, flying as well as I can every time I get in that aircraft, but also just the camaraderie around the team um, is brilliant
0: if we talk about the different bits because there's like you said there's there's a couple of different areas and each of them are really interesting so for example mm. the aerobatics um what i find really interesting i think you i found out is, is you as a team at the blades done over one thousand displays and you've done displays in dubai mm. and china can you just talk a bit more about the aerobatics team is about
1: sure so the um the aircraft we fly the extra 300 is a is a light aerobatic aircraft um so it means it can do some pretty advanced aerobatics probably way more advanced than i can actually fly it um and uh, a lot of gyroscopic maneuvers and the what people kind of would look at and call maybe crazy flying and um, the thing know, tail slides and spinning upwards and all this kind of crazy stuff but the Real advantage of it, and the reason it can do those kind of aerobatics is because it's so light. It's very, very simple. There's no sort of major hydraulic systems or anything like that. The, the wheels are welded on. Um, <clears throat> the electrics are pretty simple. There's not that many instruments in it. And so the advantage to that is it means you can take the fuselage off the wings, stick both bits into a container, and stick it on a boat and send it somewhere. Or if you've got a bit more cash, we can stick it in an aeroplane and send it somewhere. Um Although we wouldn't particularly want to fly out to the Middle East ourselves because it would take ages um, and we'd have to keep stopping to refuel, uh, we can still travel with it. So, yes, we got an invite um, to the, the inaugural um, Aero Formation Aerobatics Championships, which was going to be held in China. Um, I'm just trying to remember what year this was. 2017, I think I'm correct in saying. Um And it was amazing for me. I'd never flown over in that part of the world anyway. Um, But also, whenever I've done flying abroad, I've always done it within a military context, which means you're generally being controlled by military controllers. You know, like even in the Middle East, when I uh, was flying operationally out there, you know, you're being controlled by American controllers. So it's all very comfortable and feels very familiar. So to suddenly go to China with this little aeroplane and and literally, you know. A fly in their their airspace and how they work their airspace was fascinating they don't have general aviation in the same way as we do over here in the uk um there was no diversion airfield Um they said if you've got a problem you just come back and land at this one it's like well yeah but there's lots of other airplanes here so if you know if i can't come back and land here where i'm going to land and they're like No, you just come back and you land at this one. Okay, right, I understand. Um, You know, we didn't have a map beyond you know where we were allowed to go. They didn't want us knowing what else was sort of out there. It was phenomenal. Um, And yeah, and the championships itself was very new to us. So most of the teams were all from around the world, all superb quality. Uh, Most of them though were made of individual aerobatic pilots who now flew together in formation. And of course, we're the exact opposite. We're all formation pilots who have learned to do some of this crazy aerobatic line. Um, And these other pilots have competed nationally and internationally for many years. They've got a lot of experience. So the way the competition was run was very much like an aerobatics competition. And there is a whole language and a whole sort of culture around that, which we we're not familiar with at all, to the point that you, you're meant to hand in your aerobatic sequence. And when we do that, um we literally drew a little, you know, anyone could pick it up and know what what maneuvers we were flying in our display. Whereas if you picked up the other teams, there's this really clever coded way of writing lots of different maneuvers. And it was all written like that. And we're like, what's this? And they said, oh, you have to produce one of those. So we're like, we don't know what any of it is. How do we do this? So we felt like real novices at it. But ultimately, it was a formation aerobatics competition. And um, the way we have uh, developed our display, it's designed to show the aerobatics, Capabilities of us as the pilots and the aircraft, but also to be a spectacle at an air show. So the you know the idea and it's true of the uh, Red Arrows display is you don't want long periods of nothing happening and then something amazing happening and then another five minutes of silence whilst everyone disappears and sorts themselves out and then comes back in again. So our display is designed around that um, principle. Whereas of course aerobatics pilots are very much about the um, accuracy of each individual manoeuvre. So they'd fly a manoeuvre of wait, and then another manoeuvre. So they flew the manoeuvres amazingly well, but it, maybe it wasn't necessarily the spectacle. So I don't think anyone was more shocked than us to discover that we'd actually won the competition. <laughs> but we were really proud to do so because, like I say, we'd it was a slightly alien environment <laughs> to us in terms of how it was being run. But to prove that actually what we do is good was um, on a worldwide stage was you know a really really great thing. It was it was wonderful, really great experience.
0: That's quite amazing that. The, the company was sponsoring you to go out and do these aerobatics because like you said a lot of the the people who take part are individuals who have got this passion for this thing and they go around so i spoke to jack botlan who yeah. who was the head yeah. of the breitling team and that was his own company and he he went around and looked for sponsors and he found martini and then he had found breitling um and so it's kind of like his project but got sponsorship but whereas it's a company deciding to go out and send people to do this is is amazing um,
1: the the way the uh, blaze is run within the company is it's its own profit and loss section of the company so we're not just a pr department if that if that makes sense so we have to make ends meet we can't just because obviously flying aircraft is expensive um that's air shows don't make much money for anybody uh sponsorship does so we work quite hard to get sponsorship and we've got our our current sponsors have been with us now for sort of three four years and they're um really uh into aviation and that's who we look for people who um have been super successful in their own fields generally smaller companies rather than some huge multinational um but a lot of these people have real passions for things outside their area of business, um, and our sponsors are exactly the same. One's a cable manufacturer, um, and one is a guy who um, produces all the flight safety software for big, you know, big airlines. Um, both of whom are super passionate about aviation, and it's their way of being able to be properly involved in it in in some way. Um, and then, yeah, so, and then our bulk of our income comes from the passenger line that we do, um, and then we do unusual thing, like the china thing actually we could we make some money out of um i think we actually probably came up in about evens by the time we shipped aircraft to and fro um but uh, we went out to the middle east last year um again the uh for, for passenger flying and there's a huge market out there because of course people get there people who are expats who are living there um generally have quite a lot of extra cash to spend and after a few years they've done everything that there is available they've done the skydiving and the you know the, they've all bought the boats and all this kind of stuff and they're looking for something a bit different so when we rocked up um we had a really big list waiting list of people to fly um and also the airline pilots out there because again they don't have much ga out there um and the airline pilots really miss real flying it sounds funny to say it but when you've been an airline pilot for sort of 10-15 years you know you're not Properly handling an aircraft, handling an aircraft in the same way, and um, it was brilliant by the airline guys because they just loved it. You know, going crazy in the aerobatics and stuff, and they just wanted more and more and more of it. It was it was amazing. Yeah, really good fun.
0: But what's the typical experience day like? Because, like you said, it's, it's this amazing thing where, as a person, I get to go and fly with Red Arrows pilots. So for me, that sounds incredible. Well, what what is yeah? Like so we the try and consistent? make it quite a
1: high end product. Um, you can fly aerobatics in other locations around the country but then generally you arrive you have your brief you fly you debrief and then you're out the door so our aim really or our model is to provide a whole day and it's a you know a, the whole thing is you are the vip if you like we put sort of about 12 to 15, 16 people on the same day um, because actually it makes it better because you have people to share that experience with um and essentially you, you kind of arrive in the morning you're greeted we have like a nice little brunch obviously we have to have some safety briefings we, we are an, a registered airline so we there are certain things we have to do through regulation like you know the typical emergency brief that you'd get on an airliner we have to do our own version of that um so a few bits and pieces like that and then essentially we split the group into four three or four um smaller groups of four And you move around the activity. So you'll go flying with us, obviously, as a four-ship. So when you look around, you know you are all four of you together in that box formation really tight. And we do formation aerobatics. So you will end up flying a loop in close formation which is the coolest thing ever, no matter who is sat in the front seat, because obviously everybody's different. Some people are very energetic when they arrive. Some people are petrified. Some people are just quiet anyway. But no matter who you are, when we get you and we fly upside down, And obviously everyone's a bit nervous about the G for the first loop. So they're focusing normally ahead and you can sense that they're concentrating. You get upside down at the top, you say, oh, just look left. And they turn their heads and then they suddenly realize that they're still right, really close next to that other aircraft again. And they scream and they laugh and they shout. It's just this wonderful moment of um, pure instinctive reaction to something. I, I love that bit of my job, that first loop, because they don't do it out of any controlled way at all, no matter who they are. Something happens. They make some noise that's just purely instinctive because they've suddenly realized they're upside down, really close to three other airplanes. It's amazing. So good. (laughs) Um, And then obviously we split up slightly and we start doing then some of the um, the, uh, aerobatics, the sort of gyroscopic aerobatics and stuff. So, yeah, and then we've also got a, um, a car racing simulator um, and sort of an immersive one in the hangar. And then we have a super nice lunch. It's all really nicely catered by a chef that comes in and cooks freshly for us. And then at the very end of the day, there's a champagne display. So, you know, literally we're displaying at the airfield to that those people on that day. Um, and they stand on our balcony and get given champagne and canapes. And because we're at an airfield, the legal distance we can come close is still exactly the same at any air show. But because you haven't got all the big car parks and the crowds and everything, we literally can go to that point 150 metres away, which actually is a lot closer than most air shows actually are. So um, it really is up and close and personal. And of course, everyone's looking and watching these manoeuvres and they've just flown some of those manoeuvres. And that's the best thing for them to go, oh, my God, I was doing that. I can't believe it.
0: <laughs> I'm signing up. When is the next When is so we, the next um, one?
1: We start in March and um, we find any earlier in the year is, is literally just too cold. Uh, and it's not as enjoyable when you're freezing cold. Um, and then we normally we cease in the summer because we're a we're busy with the air shows and B it can be too hot in the summer. And it's just not as pleasant if, if you're getting really hot. People are more likely to
0: feel ill. So on top of that, you also do the events. It'd be really interesting to understand about this side. I know you've had quite a few yeah, partnerships uh, with Aston Martin.
1: Yeah, we've um, obviously as a uh, the Blades itself, we do events using ourselves as the main attraction if that makes sense so uh, we do a big charity ball every year for example um, and it's aviation linked and obviously we do a display at it um, and then generally if we're trying if somebody comes to us to organize event which it's generally because they want the blades involved in some way which gives us that sort of niche point the aston martin cambridge which is actually a dealership not the main aston martin lagonda company um the guy who is um, the principal of the dealership had this idea of doing a limited edition car um, and it was going to be a Blades limited edition. Um, it was a Vantage, I think. It was just before I joined the team. Vantage S. That's right. And he made five of them. And then uh, we did the launch ourselves. So the Blades ran the launch at Sywell, which is where we're based in Northamptonshire. And, um, you know, we got this amazing picture of these five cars coming down the motor, uh, down the runway, sorry, with the aircraft flying over the top. It's just incredible. Um, and it was such a success. I have to say, though, most of those cars were bought by people. Heavily linked to the Blades, anyway. Uh, one of our directors, for example, uh, and a couple of our sponsors bought them as well. But he realized the director, Simon Lane, decided it was a real success. So um a couple of years later, he did a separate one, which was called Spitfire 80. Um, and he ran that launch part of the event himself. Um, and I think it's very easy for anybody running events to just think, well, it's just a normal event and you're sticking some cars and some aviation into it and it's fine. But that there's some real sort of key points that you need to be very careful about when you start mixing cars, aviation, uh, and people. Um, and for rightly so, you know, the, the things that have happened at Shoreham and whatever, I mean, it's a, an area that you have to be really careful about how you're planning these things. So um, he learned through that one that actually it was sometimes better to have somebody else doing something, organizing it. So his next great project was um, a Red Arrows, limited edition Vanquish. and they came back to the blades and said look could you run the launch for that so I ran that I project managed it and it was such a great project to be part of um obviously i'd got my links into the mod and to RAF scampton the red arrows there was a huge amount of regulatory work to be done um to make sure everyone was happy at that end aston martin obviously linked in and uh, we had this amazing day for the guys who had bought the people who had bought uh, these cars uh, with the red arrows we were displaying it at the blades they flew with the all the passengers sorry all the customers flew with the blades as well it was just a great day and um I got a real um, buzz out of organizing stuff like that. I think it's got my OCD. <laughs>
0: where, where was the event, sorry?
1: At Scampton, which is okay. a pretty impressive to get permission to do that. It wasn't easy, but it was um yeah, obviously it needed to be somewhere like that that was that meant something to the Red Arrows. And the guys who bought the cars were just blown away by having that level of access to the Red Arrows. It's not an easy thing or you know hard to come by. Um but the reason it kind of happened was because they produced a 10th. So there were nine cars sold and they produced a 10th car, which was given to the RF Benevolent Fund to raffle. And the, that was part of being able to then present uh, right. um, the cars all at Scampton. So, um, yeah, the, the extra car, Red 10, I think made a couple of million pounds for the Benevolent Fund. It was amazing. Um and the guy who wow. won it nicely spent a year taking it around car shows to try and get more money, raise more money for the benevolent fund and then and then sold it on, which is um good. As in and he never kept any profit. He just gave all the money to charities. So what a nice guy.
0: Hey. So how many events do you do a year?
1: We do our annual ball every year. And then we do the, I've obviously got this link now with Aston Martin, and it's actually moved to Aston Martin Nagonda because it's probably specifically a link with Simon Lane, who's now director of Q. So um We also did a project uh, in 90. So there's been one every other year since I joined the team with Aston Martin. And the most recent one was in 2019 at Le Mans. And they produced a DBS 59 car to celebrate Aston Martin winning Le Mans um, back in 59. And we managed to get permission. I ran that one as well. And I managed to get permission to have all 24 cars lined up on the start-finish straight um, on the day of the race uh, and then the guests got to get in their car and then drive them around the track literally two hours before the race started it was amazing it was a whole five-day event with um meals at the place that the drivers stayed in the hotel's still there in this village outside of Le Mans um, and the guests got to stay and have dinner there um oh, it's just absolutely amazing really really great event so I've kind of really uh found this other part of my career that i really enjoy organizing these kind of events that require quite a lot of negotiation and determination to get some pretty crazy ideas through and to get people to agree to them
0: have you got anything excited lined up yet for next
1: year? um not well we had a few lined up that i wouldn't have been able to tell you about anyway unfortunately but obviously with covid um things are having to be done differently a lot of companies especially aston martin obviously have um have struggled and they've had to uh, not contract out any of their their work so at the minute they're doing everything in-house but i hope i really hope that (laughs) after covid when things return a little bit back to normal i'll be able to get involved with them again
0: yeah that's amazing Mm -hmm. how can people learn more about you and also the blades what's the best way
1: so the blades have a website um which is probably the best way to get all the information and there's all the information about how to fly with us and that kind of stuff um we've also got twitter accounts and it's all obvious it's all the blades.com and um Uh, I can't think what our Facebook account is but there's a Facebook Twitter and Instagram Um, and then I've personally got a Twitter account um, and I'm considering dabbling into Instagram but I've not made that commitment yet
0: great well I'll I'll definitely put your Twitter in here so people can can get (laughs) in contact if they want to speak to you directly
1: yeah no that'd be good thank you
0: brilliant well thank you very much that's been oh it's been great it's great to learn about you but it's also been great to learn about the blades and all the stuff that you you guys do
1: Oh, thank you. It's been really good talking to you, Nick. Thank you.